Welcome back to a new episode of the Making It Real podcast for founders who take action. Today, our special guest is David Heinemeyer Hansen, who is the creator of Ruby on Rails, co-founder of Basecamp and Hey.com. In the podcast, David explains how he started Ruby on Rail while also creating Basecamp and what it took to become one of the leading web development tools. He also shares his insights on core activities to create adoption in the tech and open source community. He further describes how he works to actually build Ruby on Rails, Basecamp, and Hey.com, while also being a top-selling book author and successful race car driver. So let's go. Let's learn from David how to make it real. Wonderful. Welcome, David, to the Making It Real podcast. So great to have you on. Well, thanks for having me. Well, uh, you were a business student in Denmark, and then you created one of the most uh, influential uh, development frameworks for web applications. Tell us a bit what made you there, uh, well, first start this project, and then what made it successful? So I started uh, working on the Rails part after I discovered the Ruby part. And Ruby is a programming language out of Japan that was originally created in 1993. And by the time I discovered it in 2003, maybe, it had been around for 10 years, but it hadn't really uh, gotten a lot of adoption in the West. But I learned about it through some um, papers written in, I think, ACM magazine or IEEE magazine by uh, Dave Thomas and Martin Fowler, two people who were early adopters of Ruby in at least the work that they were doing to demonstrate um, certain programming concepts. And I thought like, wow, if these two people who clearly know a thing or two about programming like Ruby, um, I should check it out. And I did, and I realized, wow, this is exactly the programming language for me. And I started using it, at, as I said, at a time quite early in its uh, explosion, I'd say is what came after that, which was um, I wanted to create web applications. Uh, I created something called Basecamp, which is the company I'm still uh, with and running today, Basecamp.com. And I created that system using Ruby. And at the time, there just weren't all the tools I needed. How do I talk to a database? How do I render HTML? How do I do all these other things you need to do to create a web application? That became the on-Rails part. All those tools I built, I put them in a box and I thought I should share that because this would make it much easier for other people to get to know Ruby. And Ruby is a wonderful language. So I thought, hey, if Rails can help other people discover Ruby, that would be nice. And also, it's open source. Everything that we built up until this point has been open source. Ruby is open source. The database I was using, MySQL is open source. The web server I was using at the time, Apache was open source. So I felt like I just owed a depth of gratitude to the open source community. And, uh, and here it goes. And then released it in, in 2004 together with this Basecamp application. And, started evangelizing it from perhaps at the time, a, a bit of a unique uh, perspective, more of a product perspective versus the approach that a lot of open source was taking at the time, in my opinion, which is quite more of an academic approach. Oh, mm -hmm. you just put it out there and if people find it, then that's great. And if they don't find it, 
Okay, fine too. I went far more like, hey, Ruby is so great that people should know about it. Let's treat this as a marketing campaign, not just as an academic uh, paper we're publishing. This is uh, a product launch in many ways. What do you do with a product launch? You build hype, you make advertisement campaigns, you demonstrate your product, you show how it's superior to alternatives, you do all of those things. And I think that just kicked it off. Now it's far more of the norm that tech products launch like this, including uh, open source products. But at the time, it was uh, quite novel, I think. Mm -hmm. What would you say were like the core ingredients to make you know web development framework be known? What should people that maybe you know come from a more from a tech community have tech background but want to make it really big as well want to have it an impact? Uh, what should they focus on? I think the key in the early days of promoting Rails was show not tell that you could write all the things about how your system was superior, but nothing beat actually showing it and showing it with real life demos that people could relate to such that there was the marketing uh, push or the evangelism that went with it, but that was only possible because we were actually showing that this was a superior approach, that this wasn't just like everything else. This wasn't just uh, uh, the same product in a different shell or with a different logo. This was a substantially different approach to it. And one of the most substantial uh, differences was that we took ownership over the whole integrated problem. So much of open source development um, picks out one little problem and then tries to do a very good job at solving that. But if you need to solve an entire problem like delivering an application to users, you have to find all these little bits and you have to put them together yourself. No one is doing, or few people at the time at least, was doing the integration work which in many ways is actually more work than uh, just solving one little piece is to figure out how does 50 pieces fit well together in an integrated solution such that the, those adopting it get everything that they need to solve their problems, which is again, of course, a very product uh, marketing based approach to figuring out like, what do people want? They don't want individualized atomized solutions. No, they want entire solutions to their problems, which is why, of course, today, this is sort of common knowledge that so much of the value in the value change around tech is in the integration, is in the vertical integration. Why is Apple doing so well? Because it's a whole ecosystem and everything is integrated finally. That was the approach we took with Ruby and Rails. And I think that uh, worked well, but at the same time, it remains controversial, which is also weird to me. Given the success that Ruby and Rails has had, um, it seems like we're regressing that much of open source developing is going back to those atomized little bits and like, hey, I'm just solving one little piece here, solving one little piece here, and you figure out how the pieces go mm -hmm. together. What's the best way to actually show these days, would you say then, rather than tell the story what it can do, what's the most effective way? Is it like creating videos, putting those on YouTube, going in the community, putting things on product hunt, like demos or recordings or the free yeah, trial? I'm a big fan of, I'm a big fan of the screencast. This was what gave Ruby on Rails its initial push. I made a 15 minute video that showed how to build a blogging system in Rails in 15 minutes from scratch. Um, I think that video is still on YouTube from 2004, me saying whoops a bunch of times. I was giving a presentation at a university in Brazil and I just recorded the audio from there and, and slapped it on. Um, and I think that works really well. Just the, the, the showing in that regard, um, showing through video, 
don't pre-cooking things too much as you know cooking shows oh let's make an omelet on here i've actually prepared everything in advance and i'm just showing you how to put on the salt yeah that's not really showing you got to show me the ingredients you got to show me how you're mixing it you got to show me the the whole thing because i think the other thing by following that approach is you actually improve your product uh you improve your project because in order to show it well it has to be well it has to be good not the only part and you can actually drive yourself into a blind alley if you only focus on that, which is why all the work that I've done in the open source community has been what I call extractions. First, I go out in the field, break some new ground on a real product with real customers, figure out how it should actually work. And then once I feel like I have the lay of the land, I extract those lessons. Then I put them into an open source package. Then I try to demo that open source package. And in that process, there's this whole loop. You're getting your experience from the real world. You're validating them with customers. You're then trying to make them generic. You're then trying to demo that generic solution that tells you how to refine it in such a way that it actually becomes easier to use. And it's sort of a virtuous circle where you end up improving it both for the people actually in the field and for people who um, are just interested in learning about it. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. I can see you now having that recoiling pretty raw as well. It's okay if it's not totally polished and so. What, how do you think about the outlets then for these videos? Is it a single outlet? Is it competing? Is there a certain order to it? Um, no, I think the, the fundamental fact of, of many of these things is that if you can build an audience, it makes it easier for you to distribute things. So I've spent 20 years building an audience in a variety of different domains. And um, I, I use that audience to show them new things that I'm working on. But also when we launched Ruby on Rails, when I launched Ruby on Rails in 2004, I didn't have really that much of an audience, right? I, we had a few thousand people following us on a blog and, and other things like that. So I don't know if it actually matters that much if what you have and show is truly good and kind of uh, unique. It has a way of traveling. It doesn't do it automatically. You still have to present it in the right way. But if the package is good, one of the few good things I think about social media is that it does have that viral effect of spreading things that truly are novel and interesting to, to developers. And there's just so many platforms from, from Hacker News, Product Hunt, to a bunch of different things that can help boost new things like that. Um, but also, if you could come at it with a bit of an audience that you had cultivated in advance, that always helps. Mm -hmm. So being in as well for the long run activities and then yeah, working with the community, building up the community. Then as well, no, in a way, and you use the word as well, no, it is about building some kind of hype, getting some kind of dynamic going on in the core community first and then in broader circles. However, that hype as well then at one point tends to fade. And now we live as well in a quite hyped up world where everybody is kind of creating noise. And so how do you think about it, uh, staying relevant then? And what are the core ingredients to staying relevant for the community? Well, I think the key realization is you have to accept that hype doesn't last forever. And no one can be at the top of the hype pyramid for a decade or even multiple years in most cases. In many cases, you are lucky if your hype cycle lasts a few weeks or a few months. And then you have to sustain that simply with the community you've attracted. And there is a breaking point here. There's escape velocity. Uh, and the escape velocity is once you've cultivated a community that's self-sustaining. It's solving enough of its own problems that the members of the community feel like they can accomplish what they want to accomplish within the community. That doesn't mean you have to become like the biggest thing in the world. The wonderful thing about the tech community in, in general, and specifically the internet, is that 
there's room for so many dialects. We don't have one language that we all speak in the entire world and thank heavens for that. And we don't have one technical solution that we all speak. There's not one programming language that dominates everything and thank heavens for that. We need a diversity of implementations of tools and, and approaches just that we don't end up in a monoculture that becomes insular and actually resistant to innovation. So I think the goal is to reach escape velocity, get self-sufficiency and sustainability, and then accept the fact that, you know what, whether you're this big or you're that big or what, what does it matter, right? In many ways, especially if we're talking about open source, it's not like um, this is a, a road to wealth. There are plenty of people who have very successful open source projects who did not at all become rich of that in terms of uh, my wealth creation over the past 20 years um, and uh, sort of the rails part played no part at least in terms of direct monetization. I mean, I made my money building products with the tools that I then gave away for free. And I think that that's just worth remembering is that you can become quote unquote famous in certain communities. It doesn't mean that it leads necessarily to a sustainable spot for you personally. Uh, I think the history of open source commercialization is, is in many ways a history of a graveyard. I was just reading this article about Docker and how Docker in many ways re revolutionized how we're packaging up uh, sort of computing and distributing it. They were unable to turn that huge success on the open source side into a commercially viable uh, future. And so I think that divorce those two things, don't think of it in those metrics. Like do you think of every piece of music as it has failed if it does not become a number one hit single around the world? No, you don't. You accept that um, there's, great music, there's great art, there's great novels, there's great paintings who have an impact amongst a certain group of people. And that is all the satisfaction any human could hope for. And if you keep measuring yourself on some ultimate global bar or a ranking board, you're only gonna end up miserable. Mm -hmm. However, as well, it is your child in a way. No, you put your child in the world and you want it to, to live well and to thrive as well. And so what do you do for your child Ruby on Rails that it stays relevant, <laughs> given you know, the, this fragmentation as well and increasing fragmentation to some extent? Well, first of all, I'd say I, I don't actually think of it as my child in the sense of I don't have this love and affection in a way as I'm trying to shield it from dangers or, or whatever else have you. Ruby on Rails is a for me, a mode of self-expression. I am creating the tools I want to use when I program. That is the driving force and why I've been able to sustain and be interested in doing this for 20 years is because I can wake up in the morning and I get to work with my own tools. That is just an immensely satisfying situation to be in. And in many ways, it is sustaining enough in and of itself, whether it's then successful on some other bar or whether it's a quote unquote relevant, you know what? It, it's, it's a very much a secondary concern. I mean, it helps, it's more fun to make tools with friends. So if you have friends around that help you make the tools better, well, that's great. But also um, there's just, as I said, there's a, quite a limit to that, right? The number of people in the open source community that I interact with on a frequent basis are numbered in like the hundreds at the very most, even though there's hundreds of thousands, if not millions of developers who have used Ruby on Rails over the years. Does it matter whether there's a hundred thousand or a million? Not so much to me and what I derive satisfaction from. And I think, again, that is one of those things you have to be very careful for before 
from because so much of even open source have now become gamified on the same metrics that dominate social media and in my opinion is poisoning society that everything is being reduced to likes and stars and retweets and other metrics of social relative status which i think is a deeply corrosive operating system for how we relate to each other and in many ways i want nothing at all to do with that um so I want to work in a sustainable community of people who are interested in the same things I'm interested in, preferably not exactly the same thing, because I think it's actually more interesting when there's some friction. This is where innovation often happens when you have opposing desires with some overlap in the values. But um, this, this path of just trying to be the biggest or the most relevant or, or whatever, no, I don't think that's a good path. Mm -hmm. What is fascinating as well, you're launching many exciting ventures actually in parallel where some people say focus, focus, focus. And you know, as well, you said it, uh, Jason said it as well, very important to focus. And you had this big success with Basecamp, you alluded to that, you know, in parallel to building as well Ruby on Rails and then uh, as well developing the community around it. What would you uh, say regarding this kind of challenge on one side to focus and really ha having one core? But then at the same time as well, oftentimes you have other projects that you really care about. Now you as well launched recently as well, very successfully, hey.com. It's a new e email, let's say, <laughs> experience. You most likely uh, know, describe it differently. Um, how do you think about that? The, the question of focus, where do you spend your time? And uh, yeah, creating excellence in, in that kind of challenge. Yes, um, well, I think actually when I look upon my career, I see an insanely focused career. It's just that it's been a long one. So you can be focused on multiple things over two decades, right? At any one point in time, I'm very focused on one thing. When we were building Hay for two years, it was more or less exclusively what I was focused on. In much the same way as you would think a, a writer who's writing a new novel, like they're quite focused on that. Few novelists are writing five novels at the same time. At least that's my perception of it. Maybe, maybe they are, maybe some of them are, but most of the ones I hear about, they're focused on one thing. But if they have a long enough career, they may very well end up publishing 10, 20. Some people have published 50 books over a long career. And I look upon my career in the same way that I've been intentionally focused. It's just that I've had a long time. So that is to say, I'm a big fan of focus. Um, but the focus can also sort of come in, come in waves that you focus on one idea, one project, one product for a given period of time. And then you go off, do some other things. And in fact, I think it's better when you do it like that, you focus intently, get something out the door, ship something, then go do something else where you learn something new, then come back to the thing that you put on the shelf and take it down again and go, oh, actually now I can look at it in a new light. I can come up with new ideas. Ruby on Rails for me has been very much like this. I get into these very intensive periods of improvement, usually leading up to a new release. I'm in one of those right now. We're gearing up for the release of Rails 7. I've spent several weeks really immersed in trying to solve some of the big problems we're tackling for Rails 7. But before that, I spent maybe a year and I didn't I barely touched Rails at all in terms of the open source project. So having these, I don't know, sabbaticals or separations from the things that you're focused on works very well. But then when you're in it, you're in it. I don't spend my, or I should put it differently. When I spend my weeks focused on five, six, seven different things at the same time, it's usually a crappy week. 
It's not the kinds of weeks where I make deep progress on the big problems that I'm facing. To make that kind of progress, I do need that focus. And it needs to be long stretches of uninterrupted time. That is really the magic ingredient is that your, your weeks and your days are not punctured by interruptions, either by meetings or distractions or otherwise, that I can sit down and spend four hours in a row working on tackling a hard problem in Rails because I'm gearing up for a big release. And when I've done that, I can say, very nice, job well done. Let's put it back on the shelf for six months, a year, whatever. Let me go put some of the tools that I've built into reality. Let me really work with them. Let me find out um, in the real world how they, how they work. And if they don't work, then I'll come back and fix them. So if we would actually look at your calendar then, when you launched Ruby on Rails in parallel to Basecamp, was it then one full week, two week, full weeks, so like, a, like a sprint fully on one? And while the other one was only one hour a day or so, how, how do well, I would we have say to imagine? When, when it came to Ruby on Rails and Basecamp, it, it was a very sort of harmonious process in terms of making the, the core progress on the tools themselves as I needed them to build the thing I was building, right? I, I would build a feature in Basecamp and I realized, oh, I need to talk to the database in this different way that I can't currently. So let me add that into the framework, but I wasn't doing the polishing work. I wasn't doing the generalization work necessarily concurrently. There's like a very heavy feedback loop between the two things. I'm refining my tools as I'm using my tools. And then as we released Basecamp, I spent like six months almost after the release of Basecamp, where I was heavily then focused on polishing Rails and generalizing it for release. Um, so there are these uh, moments where like to, to make progress on one thing, you kind of have to move in lockstep with another thing that's the enabling factor. But if it's not the enabling factor and it's sort of uh, extracurricular activity, I try not to mix them too much at the same time. Just make the, the progress I need to move forward. That's also oftentimes where a lot of the interesting energy is released, right? You take your tool and you try to screw it in. You realize, oh, the grip isn't quite right or the length of the stem isn't quite right. So I need to tweak those few things. And you're like, that's where the core ideas are being developed. And then you, you can have sort of a backlog of great core ideas that you haven't released to the world, you haven't publicized, you haven't done any of this other work that needs to be done for it to be appealing to other people, but it's there, it's ready. And then you release your product, you ship, and then you can go like, all right, now it's time to take the backlog, the stack of good ideas, and then turn them into, it's almost like notes, right? Uh, if we stay in the metaphor of writing, someone might be writing a novel right now, and they're really focused on that, but they still have their notebook, right? They're making observations as they go about either about writing or living in the world. And those observations may turn into the next novel. Mm -hmm. Fascinating. So how do you do it currently then with Hey being launched? I assume really exciting iterations there. Basecamp, substantial changes. We had uh, Ruby does version seven in the making. So... Yeah, so I, again, I, I switched between these things. So for Hey, I was um, all in on Hey for a good two years and developed an intensive backlog of interesting ideas and approaches to dealing with the infrastructure problems that most people face when they're trying to build modern web applications. And I'm just working through that backlog now, still working through that backlog now. And right now I am in, in, in a in a bit of a, well, not a bit of, I am in focus mode on getting Rails 7 uh, out, ready to ship. And that means whittling down all those ideas I had from uh, the work during the hay time, um, getting that ready for release. And then once we release Rails 7, I'll jump back into Basecamp probably, or I'll jump back into hay. I'll pick one or the other 
Um, and then I do that. And the other thing with that is, so there are these moments of focus and, and I'm in one of those right now for Rails 7, where I really am deeply focused and the majority of my days are spent thinking about and improving these projects that I need to support this release. But there's also time in between, right? Like I don't, no one could, well, I could not sustain two decades of this level of intensity of focus that I'm currently in. So there are oftentimes these sprints for me where I'll spend sometimes weeks, sometimes months, very rarely years, um, where I have that dedication. And then there are substantial breaks in between where I'm not particularly in focus mode. I'm catching up on sort of a lot of things, right? Like I've um, oftentimes I hit pause. When I'm in this focus mode, I hit pause on a bunch of things I need to do. There would be these little distractions that I need to, to process through. And then once I come out of my focus mode, okay, now is the time to, to do some of that. Also just to sit back and relax. Another metaphor here is, is athletes. When athletes are in season, they're in focus mode and they're like, they're playing the championship and they are working as hard as they can and training as hard as they can to get to that point, right? Then there's an off season and the off season is critical to their ability to sustain high performance over the long run. If no one could just play Champions League after Champions League after Champions League, right? Like that's just not how either the human body or human mind works. And I think the same is true in many regards to intellectual pursuits too. You need some off season time. And I try well to, to take some of that off season time and not feel guilty about it either. I mean, what is the point of accomplishments if you can't sit back, relax and admire them? If you just watch them that's from much one as to the well other. the European philosophy there yes. as well, you know, the balanced life as well. We haven't talked as well, we're talking about sports here as well, uh, like professional, almost like a competitive race car driver on top of it. You're a very successful book author as well, as well with together with Jason Fried, which we had on the podcast episode earlier. How, how, how do you do that? Do you, the other parts of life that life doesn't pass, it seems like, no. You built so many exciting professional successes, technology successes. There's so much else to it. You, you alluded a bit you know, to, to the balance as well needed. How do you think about that? Yeah, so when it comes to the books, they slot in in this methodology I just described, that they go into these focus buckets. When Jason and I, um, what, what we'll do usually for a book is we'll spend a decade writing in our little notebook or writing on our blog or writing on our newsletter, whatever, sending and seeding ideas, trying what works, what resonates. And then at some point we go down like, okay, let's write a book. We've done that about four times, I think now. And then we really focus for about three or four months. Then that is the topic. That is the, that is the focus slot. It's not the time where I'm also trying to push big innovations in Rails. It's not the time where I'm also trying to push big innovations in product. No. That is three or four months I've dedicated to getting this book done with Jason. When it comes to race car driving, it's a little different. That is more of, hey, I believe in the 40-hour work week. I think the 40-hour work week was a very solid accomplishment of the labor movement um, out of Europe in particular and labor unions. And the idea of eight hours of work, eight hours of um, leisure and eight hours of sleep is pretty solid. Not just because like that's good for business owners, I actually think it's, it's good for people. At least it's good for me. I, when, when I've had periods in my life where I work far less than eight hours on a sustained longer basis, that's not a happy place for me, at least sort of intellectually and stimulating. I like to put in eight hours a day, but once I put in eight hours a day, there's still eight hours left. 
right? Because I don't believe in the 60, 70, 80 hour work week. I think that's an absolute abomination and uh, a very unfortunate turn that uh, white collar professionals have taken in the United States in particular. One that's quite recent too. It didn't used to be like this. In the 50s and 60s, there was a particular class privilege in once you've reached a high professional level and you were the manager, you worked less than the people on the floor. Now it's the opposite that the people who work the most are usually in professional white collar occupations. And that just seems bananas, bizarre to me. When do you have time to enjoy the spoils of all this that you've put in? So part of me enjoying my spoils is to enjoy race car driving. And I've done that for, for the past 12 years or so. Um, and might have really enjoyed it. It's led to a, a bunch of wonderful travel around the world, uh, performing a hobby that I really enjoy and engrossing myself in a different domain that's taught me all sorts of things about how to run a business and how to optimize systems. And there are plenty of parallels between race car driving and programming, race car driving and operating a company. And I think it's those kind of other influences that actually make me a more effective, although that's not why I do it, but ultimately make me a more effective business person, a more effective product person, a more effective marketer, a more effective programmer, a more effective community um, participant. So I see that as part of the maintenance here is in terms of these focus modes, um, I get into these focus modes and you could call them sprints, but I don't think they really are because within the focus modes, I'm still working 40 hours a week, most of the time, at least. Um, they're about what's sustainable. How can I keep doing this until I'm, what, 70, 80, 90, however long we get with our full mental faculties and motivation intact. And to be able to do that, I think you do need some sort of balance. If you keep working 80 hour weeks, um, I, I mean, I was going to say, I don't think that's healthy, but I know it's not healthy. The science is in on that, that that is terribly unhealthy, in fact. And running around usually with that much stress that accompanies such long hours just wrecks havoc on your body and, in my opinion, on your mind as well. So why, do, why would I want to do that? Isn't the point of having this modicum of success that I've achieved that I don't have to do that, that I'm not a slave to other people's expectations, that I can set my own pace and, and so forth? And I say reward for success, but this is how we've always done it. We started base camp like this. We didn't start base camp with the 80 hour, 100 hour bullshit. We started it with 40 hours a week and that was enough. And I think that's the other part of it. The habits you set early on have a tendency to stick. So if you start your company thinking, oh, I have to work 80 hours a week, a good chance is that by the time your company is a success, you'll still be working 80 hours a week. And then what is it all for? Mm -hmm. Wonderful. I think really fantastic insights. Very inspiring. Let's switch to a final round. That's the quick fire round. Quick questions, spontaneous answers. If you would give yourself a middle name, what would that be? Well, I already have one. Heinemeyer. I'll just stick with that. <laughs> <laughs> but if you have to give yourself, this one was given to you. I have to do a follow up on this one. <laughs> I, I like it. I, I, I think sometimes there's a real liberty in not choosing and simply being handed things. I found this, uh, we built a house and we had to pick everything out. And I thought, wow, what a tyranny of freedom. I like to escape from this freedom. It is much better to just move into an apartment with someone else picked out everything because at least you're not on the hook if it's not perfect. Uh -huh. Wonderful, so we stick with that. What is the thing that uh, entrepreneurs should fix immediately that's so broken that entrepreneurs should fix immediately? I think that's a wonderful for you. 
the misconception that more hours leads to success and that more hours are better. What new technology will transform the future? Uh, well, I usually say the best way to predict the future is to extrapolate from the present uh, technologies that are just not widely distributed yet. I was going to say remote up until five minutes ago because this was a technology we were using at Basecamp for many, many years before it became widespread. Today, um, I don't know. I'm just going to hope uh, here that uh, someday robot cars are actually going to work. What software do you actually use that is not much known out there that makes your life much, much easier? I still use TextMate which is an editor that was created back in 2005 and had a heyday in the Ruby and Rails community for many years. And today seems like a, um, almost an antique to certain people. I love it. TextMate 2 is still a wonderful editor and more people should know about it. Wonderful. And final question for entrepreneurs that want to make it real. What is kind of like a core concept or one of your favorite concepts that people should learn about? Um, arresting ambition. I think the whole stoic principles of dealing with what you can actually control yourself and accepting what you cannot uh, relates deeply to the idea of ambition because it's often set and contingent on factors outside of your control. So if you can control your ambition and scale it down and put in your best effort and see where it goes, you're gonna be much happier and better off and probably even more successful. David, thank you so much for taking the time and sharing all these wonderful insights. All the best going forward. All right, thanks. Enjoyed it. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of the Making It Real podcast for founders who take action. If you don't want to miss any upcoming episodes with entrepreneurs who create unicorns and high-impact ventures, make sure to subscribe. Let us know your feedback on your favorite podcast outlet and follow me on LinkedIn to stay informed about future episodes. And most importantly, do not just think about business opportunities, but get started and make it real.